This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Mini Masterclass. My name is James Roy. I'm your host. Today, something a little bit different. We're going to be hearing from three different writers in response to some questions, which I'm going to throw at them. They're slightly curly questions. Most of them are related, I guess, in a sense to writing practice and how we approach our career, but some of them are just interesting questions to try and understand uh, how writers think and how storytellers think and how those uh, different things factor into the way they live their lives. Even though some of the hypotheticals that I'm throwing at them hopefully are not things that we'll ever have to confront in their real, actual lives. Now, the three people we're going to be talking to are, in the order in which you'll hear them, Ali Burnham. Ali is our creative producer at Westwards. She's also an Augie and Actor-nominated screenwriter and a NIDA graduate and is best known for her multi-award-winning feature film, Unsound, which you can currently find on Netflix, I believe. And Ali tells me that uh, if you just go and watch it and enjoy it, or even so much as put it on your list of things that you want to watch down the track, that helps her algorithms. So go and do that. The second person you'll hear from is Margot Lanigan. Margot Lanigan is a writer of predominantly young adult, but she's a a fantasy writer. She's written teen romances as well and some junior fiction, some short stories. Her short story collection, Black Juice, I think is one of the best short story collections I've ever read. And it, it her approach to short story is something that I have quoted many times when I've talked about short stories myself. And, and that is that sometimes a short story can just be a slice of life. And I've really valued that particular piece of advice in my own uh, writing because uh, and, and this is never better demonstrated than in a, in a story from Black Juice which in its own right has won I think Nebula Awards and Hugo's and all the rest and that's a short story called Singing My Sister Down which is an astonishing story. She's also written books called Tender Morsels and Sea Hearts and many others. And finally, Michael Campbell, the executive director at Westwards. He's also a biographer and a choreographer. He used to be a principal dancer with the West Australian Ballet and others. He has directed writers' festivals and he has also written for the stage. So they're the three people you will hear. They're the order you'll hear them. And uh, enjoy. And we'll be back in a fortnight with some other mini masterclass content. And we'll be doing more of these as well with different writers and different questions. So, enjoy. Favourite childhood book? I probably would default to uh, the Harry Potter series, I think. Yeah. They were very formative, um, incredibly inspirational. Like I feel like just her raw plotting technique and her foreshadowing is... Just a masterclass, and there's so much to learn there. Favourite childhood book was probably any of Tova Janssen's Moomin books, but I suppose if you're going to take one, you take the first one, Finn Family Moomin Troll. Which book 
in your experience, deals best with food? Children's book or with, a novel or a, or a um, non-fiction? I, I immediately thought of the Gentleman Bastard series by Scott Lynch. Um, so that's set in like a secondary world fantasy and it has so much fun with very imaginative and invented um yeah, fantasy food, flavours you never thought should go together. And okay. he does a really good job of making those sound delicious and amazing. Sort of like a grown-up uh, Roald Dahl almost. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, the, the series is kind of, how would you describe it? Like they're, they're crime gangs living in this fantasy world. Um, but then also they take their cooking very seriously. So you'll get like pages and pages about how, you know, they were going to sit down that night and they were going to cook a shark and they were going to put on a good feast and do it right because it's good for the morale of the gang. <laughs> I think for the children's book, it would be The Magic Pudding. And for the grown-ups book, it would probably be Nora Ephron's Heartburn, which was one of the first, I think, to actually throw recipes into the mix. Oh, that's really difficult. Um, I, think, I think the one that strikes me the most is one I recently read over summer which was Stanley Tucci's um, memoir through his relationship with food and I think that the reason why I think it's the best one that deals with food because his philosophy is exactly the same as mine in that um, preparing and cooking a meal for people is the way I express my love are you a pantser or a planner or a bit of each? I'm probably more of the planner persuasion. You think it's because you're a screenwriter? I think it is because I'm a screenwriter. I do like to have the roadmap structured. I do need to know where I'm going. Otherwise, that stresses me out, especially mm. because I end up overwriting anyway. And I don't want to overwrite my way to figuring, out, figuring it out. Otherwise, I'm just going to be like pantsing 40k before I know what's going on. Yeah, <laughs> so then you're going to be editing for years. Exactly. So yeah. I, I need to know even just for word count control and also um, so I feel safer in what I'm doing. Fair a bit of both. Yeah, I start off pantsing and then when I get completely lost in the weeds, I pull myself back and and try and work out a plan where all the, all the pants bits will fit in mm. or the best pants bit will fit in. Depends on what I'm writing. If I think back to the book that I wrote on Keith Bain, definitely planning, lots and lots of research, lots of planning. If I think about writing for performance, absolutely and utterly a pantser. Not a thought of planning in my head at all, and I just do it then all afterwards. Then you refine it later. Yeah. yeah okay, okay. James Frey famously wrote a book that was highly acclaimed as a memoir. Um, but then his name became mud when it was revealed that the same book was actually a work of fiction. <laughs> yes, I, yes. I so he this. was on he was on Oprah as a very special guest, and That's then he was right. on Oprah getting slammed. Yes. <laughs> Should it matter, or is a good story a good story? I guess this is really a question around own voices in a sense. Yeah, well, thinking of that example in particular, that's almost performance art is how I'm reading. I love that, that, that idea. Because nothing changed. It was just literally... Nothing changed in terms of the work itself. Not a single word was changed, but the response was the moment, diametrically opposed. Yes, now that we... If, if, it's a promise to the audience, right? The genre. So I guess the audience is outraged because that an inherent promise has been broken. So mm. 
I understand. Yeah. I do like thinking of genre that way as a series of promises made to an audience in the same way that a romance needs to follow a very set structure. Otherwise the romance readers are going to feel betrayed at the end. So I, I think, I guess it's the same thing if you're advertising it as this, the people who have come to it and read it and had a great time have, have only had a good time because these promises have been made and kept. Yeah. I think you should make it clear. I think the, I think readers want to know whether it's a real story or not. Yeah. Mm, okay. Yeah, especially when there's, especially when it's a story like that of sort of abuse and deprivation, and it seems like you're milking people's sympathy falsely. It's a, I personally think it's a good story. It's a good story, and even when you're writing ostensibly um, fact, you are choosing how the facts that you highlight. You are structuring them into a narrative that you want to present. So it becomes a version of the truth. We all have versions of truth mm. and all, all equally as valid. But asking me the James Frey question, of course, is a bit tricky for me because uh, when I was the festival director for Brisbane Writers Festival, I brought James Frey to Australia to one of my festivals, first time to Australia. When everyone thought it was a memoir? No, when the controversy was out. Right. And it was at a time where the the conversation was happening in around this question of um, of the relationship between fact and fiction and faction and unreliable memoir and memoir and all of that. That was that was a highly contested conversation for about eighteen months and I thought the festival should reflect that so I brought him to uh, Australia and so what he told me in private when I was sort of having my first chat with him in person as opposed to over the phone was that he presented the manuscript and he didn't say what it was and his publisher defined it for what it was He wrote the manuscript and the he was convinced package it in what he called his naivety then into a particular way because the publisher thought it would sell more copies. It doesn't change the fact that he still propagated a myth once it was out as a myth, though. No, he did propagate it, absolutely. That doesn't change any of that. Mm. But he also um, was very well aware by the stage that he came to Australia that he was part of that mismaking, and so he asked me, "I can be many different people up on a up up on a stage there. Mm. What do you want me to be?" And I said, "I want to be, you to be the writer that you are." And was he? And he was actually. He was. He he was pretty candid around. What I've just said, he was pretty candid about um, not knowing personally how dealing with all of everything that came his way. He was pretty candid about the fact that he did want to make some money from his writing, mm-hmm. um, which, you know, as an artist, God, we'd all love to make money from our writing. To the would you rather section, mm. would you rather earn 100k guaranteed a year for guaranteed for your writing? 
forever but never be able to show it to anyone or earn nothing from your writing and but have a regular column in the new yorker it'll have to be the second one the idea of no one so, so you'd earn money but no one would ever read it yeah no I, I think to close that satisfaction loop people need to read it so i have to i think it would be much more harrowing to have a regular column in the in the new yorker so I'll go for the I'll go for the money and the privacy. <laughs> okay. I really think that it would be about doing the writing, doing the process. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. Would you start your Would you rather start your career from scratch, knowing what you now know, or settle for what you have right now? Oh God, I think I would have to settle. <laughs> <laughs> The idea of starting again. Is I know, not I guess, yeah, yeah. But you know, you know what you know now. I guess the question is, would and, and part of the climb is how I learned mm. and to kind of hit the reset button on that. I don't know. No, I, I kind of like how I how far I've come and how I got there. I guess so. Okay. I, so I would say. Oh, I think I think I'll settle for the, the way it is. I think it's probably better to. I think it's probably better to not know quite a few things when you, when you come in the front end of this. Mm. of this career okay. yeah and find and find them out because i think you find out different things at different stages and and i think if you knew up front what you were going to what you were up against you might not oh i think that's too black and white a question to be honest i think that there are there are certain things i really wish i knew when i started out and i didn't waste um 15 to 20 years at minimum perhaps 25 on ideas of what other people were doing and how other people did it and then thinking I should be doing something like that but I, that's not right and getting all struggling with my own voice my own relationship with my creativity um, the my levels of confidence around it all of that if I knew that just everybody was making it up as they were going along that the good ones are, are usually completely racked with as much unconfidence and mm. uncertainty as I was experiencing if I knew if I really knew that as I now know that to be true um, I think I would have just got on with it a bit more yeah, and I guess the other th part of the other side of that question is, you know, we all know of people who do know all these things that we now know, who still aren't published. Yeah. So you know, there's no guarantee that going back, knowing what you know now, you would actually get the good fortune to actually have a creative voice. I guess. Yeah, I know, because you know, uh, one of the things I did know right from the very beginning, but not everybody does, is a career is you know there are so many people out there who are good and fantastic who have the wonderful strong creative voices that have unique voices but would you rather win a massive award like the Booker or the Carnegie or an Oscar for a single project and end your career there mm. or continue on with things exactly as they are now well the prize is tempting <laughs> retiring on a high <laughs> I, mean, I guess that's a different question if you said, you know, your first book, like, you know, for example, mm. To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah, just do one and done. But if it was your next one, would you take, would you say, okay, my next one is going to win the booker and that's, then I'm done. 
That well, is, I'd probably go for that one. That is an incredibly tempting outcome. Yeah, I think I would take it. <laughs> well, you know, I'm getting towards the age where I say, yes, give me the book of money because I could do with you know, another a, a good slab in the in the superannuation. So it would make practical sense to win the booker now rather than to kick along. But I think in terms of uh, lack of other stresses, it would have it have been your first novel. That, I think that's a bad idea. Yeah, I think that that much success for a first novel is really really hard to live up to. And then you know, and then you watch some people and they think you have to be cool with it and um, and sort of to assume that every novel thereafter is going to be. And you know, once you have won a prize of a certain size, people do just naturally um, give your your work more of the benefit of the doubt and mm. more attention. Mm. So, yeah, so it kind of kind of becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm. I don't know whether it would be an end of a career thing if I won one of those. I don't think it would be. I think it would be an end of a stage. You're on a deserted island. Would you rather three books of your choice or 20 publications chosen entirely at random? And oh. I mean entirely at random. My choice, my choice. Yeah. There's a lot of crap out there. <laughs> I think probably the 20 at random would be good for me, yeah. Mm, okay, you might get, um, okay. And I might get, you know. <laughs> you you heard the word random, reason. right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think so, because I think, I think what, whatever it ends up being, because I, I just have a terrible record for choosing the right book to take away on holiday, for example. Mm. You know, I'm always saying, well, I'll sh- I shall take the work that I really should read, you know, I mm. shall take the complete works of Shakespeare. And blah blah blah, and and just never go near them when I actually do go away. Now, now I'm presuming this is a this is a indeterminate length of time that I'm on. Yes, yeah. yes, it's not just yeah. the weekend. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I'm thinking that probably, uh, yeah, I don't know about random. Depends mm. how random, I guess. I kind of <laughs> need to see the list. <laughs> well, that, that's <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> if I'm on a desert island, I'm going to be there for ages. Three books versus 20, I might like the variety. Um, I think those three books I will have have within me no matter what. So I would probably want the other 20 and to know that there's other worlds out there beyond the beach. You're on this deserted island. and Would you rather a well-stocked library or an unlimited supply of paper and pencils? Paper and pencils. It's a tough one, isn't it? It really is. Yeah, <laughs> I think probably I think probably a well-stocked library. Mm. Okay. I think at least there would be, at least there would be, there would be some some books that I didn't like that I could use, you know, the chapter openers and the second paper. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, yeah, good yeah, workaround. Good workaround. I'll, I'll, I'll give you that. Then I guess there'd be charcoal. I could use. Well, yeah, okay. I haven't, give, I haven't, I haven't gifted you the um, the ability to make fire, but sure, why not? Oh, <laughs> uh, I think for my sanity, unlimited supply of paper and pencils. Finally, 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 deserted island. You can take one book, one movie, one album. Mm. One of each. Mm. One. I'm guessing it's not going to be Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Oh, my Desert Island. I think one of the Ghibli movies might be one of my Desert Island movies, like mm. Howl's Moving Castle. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good and, and mostly what? And they, those are good soul food. 
just watch it again and again and feel good. <laughs> book? Book. Oh, dear. Um, it's um, probably, even though I'm going to roll my eyes at myself, I do like Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss, I mm-hmm. think, because there's a lot. That's something I can read again and again, and I'm still learning from his prose. Okay. And, and what was the other thing? Soundtrack. Movie. Soundtrack. Um, Oh, probably because you put it in my head this morning, I'll have to say Hamilton. <laughs> <laughs> okay, fair enough. There's enough going on there to keep Exactly. You yeah, okay, Until cool. you have it memorised. That'll take several years. Yeah. That's a fair point. With the book, I thought maybe I thought maybe Ulysses, because I kind of need to read that again. I thought that was probably dense enough to see through as well. It's the kind of book that you can sort of read through and then start at the beginning again. It's long enough. <laughs> you, reckon, you reckon you might get you through a couple of years before you might, have to it might, yeah, yeah. Okay. And then I thought maybe something more page turnery would do better. Mm. So I thought, I thought for you know patriotic purposes, something big and enjoyable like Fortunes of Richard Marnie, which is actually quite good fun, mm. and 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 that that's really fat. Or then there was then the one that I've recently reread is a, is a YA. Um, well, it's two parts, really, so it's a bit cheating. But it's by Elizabeth Knox. It's Dream Hunter and Dream Quake. Oh, you're going, just, okay. Yep. Yeah, so that's just, you know, that's just a complete escapism. Okay. <laughs> um, I was just one, thinking about what your press conference would sound like if you just spent 10 years on an island only reading Ulysses. I know. <laughs> <And> <laughs> you're talking like James Joyce having a fever dream. <laughs> so not having a press conference after this experience. Be like, be, I'm not going to be coherent. <laughs> they get they get the end of the press conference and go, she's gone crazy. She sounds like James Joyce. Go, I know. I know. <laughs> <laughs> Any verbal input you had. <laughs> exactly. Uh, and, your, and your album? Oh, God, it's so hard. It's so hard. Um, I've... I think the last album that I really sort of, you know, played played to death um, but didn't quite make it to the point where I could no longer listen to it ever again was one called Elvis Perkins in Deerland. Okay. I shall be so sure I to think check I could, that out. I could probably listen to that if you want. It's kind of, it's just a really sort of weird collection of verbal Verbally interesting thing, hmm. and mu- musically and and sonically slightly strange thing. Okay, and your movie. My movie, I thought would, I thought Groundhog Day would be a really good one. <laughs> because that's have, very meta, isn't a, it? Yeah, you'd have a terrible repetition to identify with, but you'd have also a bunch of things that you were missing in it. So you'd have all those people who are mostly pretty reasonably deftly drawn characters. Mm. And you've also got snow because if I'm pre- I was presuming this desert island would be either desert mm. or tropical and you'd want something that was, you know, about people wrapping up against the snow and mm. waiting yeah, for the spring. You, and yeah, because you, you de- definitely don't want Lord of the Flies, do you? Uh, the, no. no <laughs> I, I, once, I once once, I used to have to... Um, Spend when I was a nurse, I used to work with eating, kids with eating disorders sometimes, and they'd be sitting there having their meal, and I'd be trying to get them to talk, and because I I hate sitting quietly at a table and not having conversations, so I I would ask them this question, and one girl one time told me that she if she was shipwrecked on a deserted island, she would um, 
have a book about Titanic, the uh, soundtrack from the movie Titanic and the movie Titanic. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I, you heard me mention the shipwreck bit, right? <laughs> God. I probably, um, the album would be a... I can't remember the title of this uh, of the album, but I I can picture its cover. I've listened to, to it so often; it's just in in the car. It's by Egberto Tismonti. No, Dancer Solaris. It's he is a Brazilian jazz player who mixes traditional Brazilian with nineteen eighties, seventies, eighties jazz, and it's amazing and he improvises half of it and extraordinary rhythmic qualities and everything else Egberto Gismonti so that would be the um, and because the the rhythms are so complex I can listen to it over and over book book that's too hard that's way too hard (laughs) 